Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the bing bong! My name is Jared, and I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? And Austin. Yo. And back with us is the science lady at Wisecrack, Helen. Hey, y'all. So today we are talking about the 2015 film directed by Pete Docter and Ronnie Del Carmen, starring Amy Poehler, Inside Out. So, unfortunately, I think we were going to do solo, but I could not bring myself to see it this weekend. But <laughs> but if, for those of you who wanted us to talk about solo, I might see it this weekend. Let us know in the comments if you guys want us to cover it. I just wasn't too interested in the movie. Anyway, let's, as always, get some first impressions. Let's start with Austin. What was the fir- like the first time you watched this movie, and what was it like oh, revisiting it? Did, did, I can't remember. Did we talk about how, like, when you're on an airplane and you're psychologically more, vor- more vulnerable, how that actually, like, opens you up to heightened states of emotion? Did I talk about that on this podcast with you guys? I don't think so. So apparently there's this psychological theory that when you're on an airplane, you're more susceptible to peaks of emotion because you're more attuned to your mortality and the first time I saw this I was on an airplane and I (laughs) was a motherfucking wreck I cried (laughs) like oh my god this movie hit me in the feels I don't remember which flight I was on but I I've done quite a bit of traveling over the Atlantic because you know I lived in the UK for a long time and I spent a lot of time in Spain and then I'm from LA so you know I did that journey all the time so it was one of those journeys um, but fuck, man, I remember the first time I just remember being on a plane and like looking around me going, this movie's amazing. Do you guys know how amazing this movie is? <laughs> um, so that was the first time I saw it. And then last night I was probably equally just as much of a wreck. Um, just, you know, 30 something year old man sitting in his room crying about an imaginary <laughs> guy that uh, disappears. And it made me remember my imaginary friends. Um, uh, I had what was your imaginary friend's name? Well, so they were actually a crew. They were a crew of motorcycle men. And wow. uh, in oh. Southern California, you know how you drive a lot? Uh, yeah. So I was in the car all the time. So they were these like little motorcycle dudes that would always accompany me in the lanes like next to me and like weave in and out of the car tires and stuff like that. And like, like, like jump off of ramps and curbs and things like that. So, yeah, but that, that was the only ones that I can remember. The other ones have fallen deep into the recesses of that canyon, whatever the fuck it's called, where they have disappeared, if there were others. But I remember the motorcycle men. And one last question before we move to Ryan. What is the Pixar movie that made you cry the most? Um, I mean, the opening of Up, for sure. Oh, good one. Yeah, okay. I remember that. I was in Westwood, actually, and I was my girlfriend at the time was at UCLA, and I remember we were like, oh, cool, let's go see this new Pixar movie and within first 10 minutes I was like Jesus man (laughs) fuck you Disney (laughs) all right let's move on to Ryan Ryan uh yeah well I pretty much agree this movie uh really floored me the first time I saw it it's got all the feels um and I remember thinking like the first time I saw it that it was just really impressive just how you I really could see kids learning from this movie, you know, about emotions and how why they behave the way they do, why they think, you know, like really being an existential kids movie, I thought was really ballsy for Pixar to make to begin with. Kind of how like the, the way I felt about Inception too, and from just a filmmaking standpoint, just like what a cool concept for a for a film having emotions be people kind of and have their own emotions but um so yeah i was really just impressed all around with the movie i love this movie a lot 
And then this, and then watching it this time, I noticed new stuff, kind of. I think, and yeah, long live Bing, Bing Bong. Long live Bing Bong. I, I actually thought to myself when I was watching this movie, it's like, what would a six-year-old say if you said, "Tell me what Inside Out is about"? It, right. Like, yeah. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know any six-year-olds. So, if you it, know a six-year-old, write us in. Let me know what they say. And to answer your question too, the I've only cried during one Pixar movie, and it was fucking Coco. Ooh. Oh, yeah. God yeah. damn, Helen. I believe, actually, Helen, the uh, neuroscience aficionado, it was actually her first time seeing this. Is that right? I don't know how I missed it. <laughs> it was honestly phenomenal. Like, I think the I cried through the whole thing, too, and I thought I thought it might just be me. I was like, I'm just emotionally vulnerable and started thinking, actually, about all the things happening in the movie. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is like reflections. This is exactly what's happening to me right now. Yeah, and then it's yeah. just, but, like, my sadness is just out of whack. But, no, I think um, it was it was just so, just such a beautiful artistic representation of, like, of the mind. And I just could, I can't get enough of it. And, yeah, so it was it was very emotionally taxing. But... Also overall delightful. So nobody um, had ever said you got to see Inside Out. I no, nobody ever <laughs> mentioned it. But I feel like I'd, I'd heard it come up a little bit, and it was like, oh, this is a movie about the brain. You'd really like it. And then, um, but had never had never seen it. But I do. I just missed it somehow. Yeah. But God, it was so good. Yeah. It was so well done. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. And Pixar movie that made you cry the most? This one. This one. Yeah. Up. I cried a lot, but this one through the whole thing. So. Yeah, so yeah so I, I, I mean, as far as crying, like the bing bong bit is sad, but actually that's yeah. not the bit that gets me the most. Uh, the bit that gets me the most is when she comes home and then mm. it's like reuniting with the family. And then, of course, the bit when she first realizes that sadness is important. Like those are the bits that I actually think are like bing bong is that's sad. But for some reason, it's the other bit. It's almost like the happy bits, the bits that are like profound emotion that are the ones that get me the most. I don't know. You guys? Cool. Uh, uh, I hear that. Well, and Jared and uh, Helen, I was just going to ask, uh, 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 imaginary friends when you were little? Oh, yeah. God, I had one. I don't remember his name. I don't even know if he had a name. I just <laughs> oh, remember. so his memory his faded memory, out in your headquarters. Dust. Oh, my God. So sad. So yeah, sad. I don't know what to say. I was like three years old. That is it's tragic. What about you, Helen? I did. I had a white cat named Lily, and I had it a was almost a cat? whole world. No, the, oh. she was in my mind. She was very much like a, a humanoid white cat in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it was very like, and she had a husband named Charles Barkley. I think what was that cartoon? <laughs> there was a cartoon a long time ago that was like all. Do- I think it was All Dogs Go to Heaven. I think something about that movie, like I don't know, it, it ended up being. So I have a representation in my mind of of that, and it just manifested in an imaginary friend. Mine was the Teenage oh, Mutant Ninja like... Turtles. Oh, see, I really? my, mine was definitely a dude. I think I always wanted a brother, so I like made myself one, but I don't remember his name. Yeah, I was just part of the gang. And I think you I were, only had were, him for like a you day. Were, you were a turtle? I mean, that was just like my imagination was just, you know, I'd always pretend like I was a part of the Ninja Turtles and that, you know, Donatello and all of them were my, my buds. That's and, so amazing. Yeah. So I was, my imaginary world was already established on, uh, on TV. I love that. So <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Oh, Jared, when was the first so, time you saw this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the first time I saw it, I saw it in theaters. Um, you know, it's weird because I am such a huge Pixar fan. I think that the people at Pixar are the best storytellers in the world, hands down. And I think that this movie on a conceptual level is unique and fascinating but I think there is, I don't think you can connect with these characters, like the emotions, like the joy and anger and sadness, as much as you can a character like Ratatouille or one of the characters in The Incredibles. And we'll talk a little bit more like that. But yeah, I was similarly pretty amazed. 
and revisiting it this time, I honestly just found myself really neurotically just trying to figure this... Not, not that the movie doesn't make sense, but I feel like I'm too neurotic for this movie because I'm like constantly <laughs> asking myself, like, now wait a second, who's pulling whose strings? You know, like, are, are the emotions informing her? Is she informing the emotions? Oh, um, Rick Sanchez. There's man. all sorts of Don't really intro. It. There's all sorts <laughs> right. of really interesting, interesting philosophical and scientific questions you can ask about this movie that it it brings up. But ultimately, this is no different. The Pixar guys, they know how to tell a story. Mm. I cried during fucking Bing Bong. That shit was insanely sad. Real tears. <laughs> uh, real tears. But I will say that the biggest cry, not Coco, Toy Story 3. Mm. Yeah, people Toy say Story yeah. 3. Toy Story yeah. 3, I think, is still like... I got the feels, but this Coco had the whole death thing. You know, no, Coco which... was is a close second. This one... I'd have to think hard before I said this is the third, but I'm going to say probably this is the third third most weepy I get. Hmm. <laughs> but anyway, before we dive into this movie, let's go into a recap. So, 11-year-old Riley has pretty much had a perfect life until one day she's met with some unexpected changes. Her dad gets a new job and the family is forced to move to San Francisco. This puts Riley and the anthropomorphized emotions inside her head that inform her behavior, joy, sadness, anger, disgust, and fear, into uncharted territory. As Riley struggles with adjusting to her new life and new school, Joy attempts to keep all the other emotions in line, especially the annoying and destructive sadness. Sadness hijacks the controls while Riley is at school, creating the first sad core memory. Joy's attempt to stop the core memory from tainting Riley's personality goes to shit when all the core memories, as well as her and Sadness, get sucked into long-term memory. Without Joy and the core memories, Riley starts to act out as her personality islands start to crumble. Now Joy and Sadness have to traverse through all the different parts of Riley's brain in order to reinsert the core memories back at HQ. Along the way, Joy and Sadness meet Riley's childhood imaginary friend Bing Bong, and Riley plans to run away back to Minnesota. Joy and Bing Bong fall to the area where memories are forgotten, and Joy realizes the developmental importance of Sadness, and Bing Bong sacrifices himself so that Joy can escape the pit. Just as Riley is about to take the bus back to Minnesota, Joy and Sadness arrive at HQ, and Sadness reinserts the core memories, turning them sad. Riley returns home to her parents and has a good cry, rebuilding the personality islands to her new teenage stage of development. End of movie. So anyway, guys, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is basically the storytelling element to this movie. I mean, I feel like in this movie, more than other Pixar movies or other movies in general i kind of feel like the the premise is the movie like yes you know i mean i would expect i mean did you guys ever feel like okay i'm watching a movie in which it's like who are we supposed to identify with is it joy is it riley which one riley i i would say riley too but even then i don't think you're really supposed to identify that closely with any of them it's more of a reflection i think my, my question is i mean i i thought we were that riley's the protagonist but the problem is is riley if she if we we're to say she does make choices in the film then are we basically watching a puppet show but focusing on the puppeteers instead of the puppet i agree with you that the entire mechanics of how this system <laughs> works is shaky at best you know it's one of those things that like you hear you see the the thing and you're like okay that makes sense you know, like like the whole they set up the world pretty good, but then yeah, when you really think about it, like do these do the emotions have their own free will and stuff, or right. is yeah. their free yeah. will part of Riley's? Where does it begin and end? Yeah, and the answer it. is don't fucking think about it. The answer is don't think about it, <laughs> yeah. but that's not what we do here. Goddamn it! I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
into it, baby. It goes in and out, too. You know, sometimes it does feel like they're just watching, and other times it's like they're in control, and it's just like a, it, it was, um, yeah, it kind of goes back and forth, it feels like. And then also there's kind of a weird, if you take it to that extreme, like this fascistic element. Of... Well, that I definitely want to talk about. I mean, you mean with Joy being yeah. a fascist? Yeah, I mean, that's the message of the movie. And uh, another thing that... I don't know. So interestingly, all right, let's just let's talk about that first. Let's talk about Joy cuz I think Joy is the protagonist of the movie and yes. she makes choices even though it's not entirely clear if an emotion can make choices or not <laughs> because there are these scenes where anger will try to act like Joy, but no matter what button he presses it's going to come out angry. So then I'm just like, "Oh, okay, so these emotions don't have any free will." So, but yeah, you're right. The answer is don't think about it, I guess. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I guess my thing with the movie is so I think this movie has a very interesting commentary about how our culture overemphasizes happiness. And we see this at the beginning of the movie with Joy is kind of a fascist. She's always bossing up around the other emotions and thinking that all other emotions should bend to her will. And then basically the the the, the arc of the movie is that she later realizes that sadness is essential in development and that you can't push sadness away. She even says at the beginning of the movie, you know, anger is uh, so that Riley doesn't uh, fall victim to injustices and fear is so that she doesn't get hurt. But I don't know what the hell sadness is for. I've tried to get rid of her and I can't. Uh, and so I guess that's the realization of the movie. But for for me, I always knew that, oh, Joy is being a bitch. Like, this is not okay. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I think that... The movie only kind of works if you go in saying, no, that makes sense to me. Like, all other emotions should be suppressed in favor of happiness. But if you question that and you're kind of like, no, Joy is the antagonist from the very beginning, then how are you supposed to take the movie? Basically, my criticism of this movie, and I don't even think it's a criticism because, once again, I think the movie is great. I think it has a really great, important message. But as a piece of storytelling, I cannot engage with this movie and I cannot be... Uh, swallowed by this movie and I cannot identify with the characters in this movie as much as I can other Pixar movies. Well, yeah, but wait, get back to your point though about, about joy uh, at first doesn't know what sadness is about, but then she realizes it yeah. later. So what's the, what's your problem with that arc? Uh, I guess because I think in order for that arc to work, we also have to be on her page and say, oh yeah, like it makes sense that joy would be trying to push sadness out of the way. Why but can't if, we just think that she's fl has flawed thinking uh, at the beginning and then, and, and you're the whole time supposed to be rooting saying, hey, what, you know, why are you being mean to sadness? And then, uh, uh, and then she, re she learns what we've already known the whole time at the end. I guess. I mean, usually when things are at, I mean, I, I agree with you, but I think that's more to the point of the, mo the of my criticism of the movie or, or how this, look, it's hard for me to say the word criticism because I think any time, I mean, you could do this with any movie, right? You could have There Will Be Blood, except, you know, we're seeing the emotions that are puppeteering Daniel Plainview, but who would want to watch that? You I, know? I think you made a good point a minute ago about how society makes, you know, uh, emphasis, overemphasizes joy right. and that she's kind of a person. Joy is a personification of that, of like, oh, man, you, we got to be happy all the time. Why right. not be happy? You know, why, why being sad? And so all so when we were talking about the free will of each character, it's like each character, they are personified of their whatever their emotion is. That is their train of free of free will, basically, or their of action of, of, of action. So she's just trying to have the maximized joy you know and 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 sadness is her you know main uh thwart to that so it's kind of like well, uh, let's, let's be real and i think here. it's cool that she learns at the end that she doesn't need to do that 
Yeah, I was going to say, but let's be real here. This film actually completely throws into disrepute the idea that there is such a thing as free will. And when you study... <laughs> yeah, yes, you, that's true. <laughs> and, and when you study neuroscience, same thing. I mean, you know, from what we understand in cognitive theory is that sometimes our decisions are made before we consciously are aware of them up to a half a second. So there, there are chemical processes that take place prior to our conscious awareness of them that really throw into disrepute this idea of a libertarian free will free from any sort of coercion um, outside of our conscious willing of the decision. And this film, that's what's on display. So each of the little like the, the personifications of emotion, um, they're, they don't have like a free will. They're just driven simply by what we might call their sort of um, – uh, so Spinoza uses this term conatus, which is this idea of like your uh, – the desire to sort of maximize or to persist in your being, right? So they sort of just like are habits of the thing that they're defined by. So joy is just perpetually joyous. Anger is perpetually on the cusp of exploding because that's perfect for Lewis Black anyway. Um, you know, and each of the personifications are just like the, the habit of that sort of striving to persist in their being and then that manifests into feelings in uh Riley and and I and uh, and I think that there's like a distinction that needs to be made and I, the film doesn't touch on it but I think it kind of hints at it um and if it doesn't enough then this might be actually where the the science is interesting but Antonio Damasio talks about the distinction between emotion and feeling and emotion is the sort of like pre-awareness of the things that happen to your body that jolt it in its states that either increase or decrease the the various states of that we would call emotion quote unquote but feeling is different feeling is the conscious awareness of anger or sadness or frustration or fear or whatever and so what you see then is you see a sort of um like a, a unilateral direction of um the personifications of emotion that then manifest into the feelings within riley but I don't think that they're very clear about making that distinction, but it's kind of there. And so if that's the case, then the idea of free will seems to be a sort of, I don't know, just a folk way of talking about something that is a deeper neurological process. Austin, I thought that was such a great analysis just then. The, like the theory of core consciousness, is that that's what you're referring to, right? Yeah, precisely. Antonio Dimaggio, mm-hmm. Really interesting, the awareness of the feel, of feeling a feeling. So right. I, 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 so I want to I pose the same question using a, an example from the movie. So in the movie, Sadness, does she choose of her own free will to paint the memory sad? If you see in the movie, she's like going up to the core memory and she's like, ooh, and she wants to touch it. She wants to touch it. Who is who is compelling her to want to touch the memory? Why does she want to touch the memory? Is that... Even like when sad, even when Joy asks her, "Why did you do that?" she she doesn't yeah. have an answer. She fumbles around looking for an answer. So, what is compelling her to touch these core memories? That's the question of free will that I think this movie poses. Or, or is it just a particular stage in psychological development? And so, because Riley is now eleven, and her emotions are going to become a little bit more complex. And and this is. I don't know how accurate this would be, but um, I watched uh, previously. I, I've watched some videos by one of the um, one of the scientific consultants. Uh, his name is mm-hmm. Dacker Keltner, and um, he talks about how actually in young women, in particular, between the ages of like ten and fourteen, there's like a radical shift in like I, I can't remember how he described it, but he was like basically like your happiness goes down. You know, like the experience of joy kind of has like this sliding scale downward. 
And it's not that you don't experience happiness or joy, but all of a sudden the complexities of emotions start to come in and things get to be very different. So I wonder if that's what it is. It's like she's on the sliding scale to puberty and complexity of emotion. And so that's why there's this like compulsion. But Helen might be able to... But, say, but, I'm, but I'm saying, where does the compulsion come from? Like we're biology, saying that the, the, like the, growth, the, 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 development. The, yeah. So we're just saying that the emotions are reacting to the real life, or that there's just some like factory of hormones that basically affect the emotions and propel them to do things. Well, I think that's what they're supposed to do, right? That's kind of their their whole purpose is to be able to. And I, in this case, I think it could be puberty, but I also think it could be cognitive appraisal. Um, you know, and and just kind of like we see in the movie too that sadness enables you to be able to reflect on your situation like when they're she's you know when sadness is talking to bing bong and he's able to talk you know it was something you lost something that you right, love right and that's where i think it's like oh sadness what are you doing but she is enabling that process right or that's kind of how i interpreted that a little bit because it is kind of like what what the hell is she doing but it seems like that might be her prerogative yeah yeah i i uh, mm-hmm. um to, to your point about the free will of sadness, what I want to know is that is sadness the does sadness have uh, the character in all the different people? Because we know that sadness is in everyone. Is there is the sad is sadness the same in everybody? You know, kind of because because that's kind of what you're getting at is does Riley's sadness character have her own compulsions? Because she obviously seems like this kind of bumbling, negligent character. If she's going to be tainting all of the the <laughs> knowingly tainting all of the the memories as sad and and joy, like you said, point blank asks her why the hell did you do that? And she doesn't have a good answer. It's just kind of like she's just drawn like a zombie. Yeah, like a, a child basically. Basically. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but my question is just, okay, so if Joy yeah, can only do joy, joyous things or act joyously, what is it that compels her to be protective over o- over Riley more so than sadness or any of the other ones? So far, Riley's just been a, a super joyful character. She's the one in charge. Isn't that kind of how it works? So in that case, she would not have free will. Because we're getting back to the question of free will. Yeah, kinda, so it's, right? yeah. I, it's like, I think... <laughs> I think what you and Austin are saying, and the, the, the profound message of this film is that our emotions may not know ourselves as much as we cannot know ourselves. Is that? I can see that as being, I don't know, what do you think, Austin? I mean, I, what do you mean our emotions cannot know ourselves? I mean, because emotions are blind. Emotions don't have conscious awareness. They just simply function. <laughs> and and I, I mean, we, in a way, like the, so the, the point of bringing up Keltner, one of the things he talks about, and he emphasizes over and over again, is that we are our emotions. And what he means by that is your conscious experience isn't something that's separate from reason or rationality, but as a matter of fact, they're intertwined. So there isn't this war of like uh, reasoning or faculties that are somehow opposed to emotion, but they are actually made up of emotion. They are emotion expressed. So I don't know that we can even, I mean, from from like a, an authentic point of view, I don't know that we can speak about emotion being aware of itself. And I think that it's better to maybe think that they're just sort of like functioning as pure automatons of their characteristic. So joy just simply is joyous in all of her expressions. Disgust is simply disgusting in all of her expressions. Fear in all of his expressions. Does that make sense? So everything that it does just simply moves towards that moves towards that end because it's impelled by what it essentially is and then it the manifests emotional as, viruses yeah yeah exactly in in a way yeah exactly and then it manifests as feelings and then of course develops later states of consciousness and self-reflection and awareness of those 
emotions as they're being expressed through feeling, which then is a, a state of sort of awareness, and then it's expressed through consciousness, like I am sad. So it's like these layers, these steps that you have to go through that are complexifications, if you will, of very simple um, kind of just biological impulses. Right. I, what all I'm I'm just kind of questioning what is there a statement made or is it just a the inevitable fallout of a movie for kids that we have emotions being depicted as conscious entities? <laughs> that's that's really my question. The answer is yeah. don't think about it. Well, the reason that these emotions were chosen is um, Helen is the guy named Ek Ekman. Is Ek, that, uh, I think Ek, it's Ekman. Ek, let me see. Ekman. We did a video about this like a year ago. Okay, so yeah, the the yeah. guy that has the idea that there are like these seven emotional states, right? And I think he, yeah, six he has, or seven. He had six, and six. he threw out surprise for this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah. yeah, and then they didn't use all of them. So these are like supposed right. to be the core emotions, and then I guess other, you know. Um, uh, psychologists and cognitive theorists and whatnot have like up to like 18 or 20 or something like that um, or even more that are sort of like core emotions but um like fuck man maybe it's just trying to take like a scientific theory and make it kind of cool and yeah exactly you it's know? making it fun and family yeah. friendly and really interesting for children and i think it's probably a great great learning tool Real quick, uh, in the chat, uh, Austin, to your reply, a uh, reply to you saying that they're automatons for their own emotions. Ebenezer Danks says Joy cries in the movie. If you you know, so that kind of is uh, a little that's yeah, a and really that's that's point. yeah, that is really interesting, and that's where I think the movie gets gets kind of cool, right? Is that it's sort of then, and I'm glad that they brought that up because yeah, yeah, so they're they're automatons maybe at first, right? They're cle clearly delineated, like joy is joy, sadness is sadness, fear is fear, and then at the end you start to see that these memories are sort of amalgamations of all of them, and you have that control panel at the end where they're all working together. And maybe that's then sort of hinting at, well, actually, when you really start to, to move into emotional development, what you get is like a complexity where there is no such thing as just a pure joyous emotion. And then memories that are formed aren't purely joyous or sad or angry or whatever, but they all sort of fuse together and that it's more about uh, a sliding scale of degrees. So, you know, there's just about intensity. It's about having and balance. I kind of think yeah. that it's just that they needed a protagonist. It just so happened to be a visual embodiment of a single emotion, and any protagonist has to go through a change. And I, I, I kind of think that they just had to do it. You know, no, I think that because I don't think that I don't think that this. anger or fear they don't get to exhibit any kind of qualities outside of their. You know, anger or fear, but they get to take over. You know, yeah, but they, but they fail. Like every time anger tries to do something outside of angry, it just ends up coming out angry. Same thing with fear. Same time. Same thing with disgust. They cannot escape their essence. Where joy does later in the movie, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're never going to get out of this yeah. rabbit hole. Yeah, we could keep going. Um, All right. So Austin, I actually wanted to ask you something. I wanted to go back to the storytelling element of this movie, and you've said before on this podcast that. Sometimes when a movie is, like, so clever, it almost takes you out of it. And I have mm. to ask, did you not feel this way with this movie? Because I feel like this movie is extremely impressive, but everything is relentlessly clever. Like, right. the subconscious is where they take all the troublemakers. <laughs> the triple mint gum commercial. You know, oh, it's so funny, they're dramatizing earworms. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, everything has a double meaning. How, did this not take you out of it because you're constantly saying to yourself, like, oh, I see what they did there? It didn't take me out because 
for some reason it, it was embedded in the authentic um, sincerity of the story that I had already bought into. And I think in a way there's – we talked about Brecht last week which regard, with regard to Deadpool. And even though this film isn't intentionally Brechtian, by using all of these references – it sort of makes you self-reflective and you hear that like the gum commercial. You're like, fuck, how many of these stupid jingles do I have that ring in my head perpetually out of nowhere? Like, like you're not fully clean unless you're zestfully clean. Like, fuck, we know the zest commercial. I know double mint gum commercial. I don't know that one. I Mc- know double mint gum and McDonald's. Big Red for sure. Ba, 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 ba. You know, like, <laughs> like, fuck, man. Like, how many of these jingles are going to rattle into my brain forever? So there's a cleverness but at the same time, it, it kind of like takes you along with the story and makes you think about, oh my God, my impulse is for joy or my impulse is for anger or my impulse is for fear. And so in my imagination land, and I mean, I didn't have a teen boy crush from Canada, uh, but I had teen girl crushes from around the world. So that factory of them being made, you're like, fuck, that's really clever. And it makes you think about yourself and your own life experiences in a way that I think I don't know. For me, it, it doesn't actually take me out of it. And maybe it's just because I bought into it so hard at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I just when I watch this movie, I see like I'm I feel like I'm watching an idea play out more than following a character's emotional experience. So let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So I think if you look at some of the best Pixar jokes, what this movie does with like everything, including all the lines of dialogue, is what a lot of Pixar movies do in the third act with some of their visual gags. So like, whereas other Pixar movies, we have humanoid characters going through very, I'm sorry, with other Pixar movies, we have like non-human characters, but are kind of portrayed in a humanoid way going through very human emotions. Uh, But in this movie, we're just kind of watching personified emotions. So in Ratatouille, at the end of the movie, these visual gags are really great because in Ratatouille, we see mice do mice things when they're cooking. So, you know, we're seeing these visual things happen and like they're rolling wheels of cheese or whatever. We're like, oh, that's funny because they're using our knowledge of mice to, you know, make this extra clever. Or when Buzz and Woody use toys in a creative way to stop a car. Or when we see Mr. and Mrs. Fantastic going through the visual cues of a midlife crisis, but it's really in the context of superheroes. Uh, but in this movie, that's the whole thing. The whole thing is see what we did there. Mm-hmm. They changed it up, dog. They just made a, a new <laughs> yeah. kind of movie. You know? I, I mean, I think it's it's so impressive. Like, obviously, yeah, the, awesome. I, I mean, this is once again still within the canon of Pixar being the best writers in the world. Uh, but I'm like too neurotic for this movie because <laughs> because I don't feel like I'm getting with other Pixar movies. Like, I will never forget. Woody or Buzz Lightyear. I'll never forget Wally. I'll never forget the Ratatouille rat, even though I can't remember his name. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I went on journeys with those characters and really projected my human emotion oh, yeah. onto them. Mm. But I don't feel like we're getting this shared sense of humanity with Joy or with Riley because Riley's more or less the puppet in the movie and Joy is either a fascist or not a thing with free will. And I, I just not, I, 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 I just get taken out of it a little bit, but that's not to say that the movie isn't amazing and that it's not one of the most impressive yeah, well, movies I mean, made in the last what 10 years. What I would years. say about that is that it's, I mean, I totally agree with you. And then I also, but to totally disagree on how much that care that matters, you know, cause it's like from a, uh, you're right. It's not a total, it's not a normal hero's journey, yeah. but I love movies that just, you know, break, you know, 
like Pulp Fiction or whatever. They chop yeah. it up, or they, uh, uh, or they or Inception, where they, you know, there's so many layers of storytelling. This is fucking child yes. movie Inception, and it's yes. awesome, <laughs> and it's and and we should be grateful that it exists. I'm not and, not being grateful. Can we not have nuance on this podcast? I'm sick and tired every time I'm like critical. <laughs> someone emails just like God, Jared, you miserable bastard. Well, like, that's what they're saying. <laughs> that's what they're saying. On, uh, on are the they chat. saying like how well, dare maybe, you criticize maybe, something that's perfect? Maybe, well, okay, no, I know that. I was just gonna say I know that you, you all you all you followed up with that you also think is very impressive, but I also think that that the just who cares about the hero's journey? This is a cool uh, kids movie. Yeah, see, yeah. I was gonna say I think what you're saying, Jared, is precisely the point of Brechtian alienation: is that you're not supposed to just simply be immersed in aligning with the character. You're supposed to have that suspension of disbelief itself suspended. And um, and that's precisely what like Brechtian theater or, you know, like something like Waiting for Godot or like self-referential films or Breaking the Fourth Wall um, are supposed to do. They're supposed to elicit a, a sort of self-reflective experience. So maybe when you think about Inside Out, rather than thinking like, man, I really love Joy as a character 10 years from now, what you'll think about is, man, I remember how interesting it was watching that movie because yes, it made me absolutely. think about yeah. And so maybe that's what's different about this that's film. Like the is premise that is the movie. Exactly. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And that maybe that's what's fucking yeah. cool about it is that it is a sort of Brechtian Pixar film, whether they intended it to be so or not. So I'm going to read a a, uh, quote from an Atlantic article by Daniel Smith. He said, uh, Last year, Variety predicted that this movie could eventually prove to be as revolutionary as Dante's Divine Comedy, which so vividly (laughs) described the Italian poet's vision of heaven and hell that it shaped the public's image of both ever since. Um, And basically they're saying that this movie could very well inform our the way that we think about and visualize how the brain makes decisions. And as as a piece of art like that, I totally get it. I mean, I don't watch Divine... I don't read Divine Comedy and I'm like, oh man, I don't know what's going to happen to, you know, Dante. And, you know, I I don't. It's like, it's a piece of poetry and it's beautiful and it's thought-provoking, but it is not a character story that that grabs you by the balls at all. Uh, I... I'll go on in this article. It says, Keltner pointed out that the prevailing Western metaphors for emotions have been mostly negative. They're wild animals or diseases. They're uncontrollable forces that make you crazy. Now here comes a movie that says, no, emotions can have an important role to play. They help us adapt and serve our well-being. So, yeah, I also think that that's awesome that that message is conveyed in a movie. Hell yeah. Do you, th- do you think that it's going to be as popular as, as uh, celebrated as uh, Dante in a couple hundred years. <laughs> well, it's kind of like like uh, people celebrate Dante without knowing they're celebrating Dante, right? Kind of, kind of like just the hero's journey, myths and all these things. You know, all the, they're all inspired by uh, by all of it, and then and then it just gets sucked into the zeitgeist. I think Inside Out is going to have that similar <laughs> effect. It's going to, uh, yeah, a hundred years are going to go. They're going to think about emotions this way, and they're going to go, wait, how did that originate? Yeah. Oh yeah, Pixar. Exactly. I read about it on a cave. Yeah. <laughs> you also hear all these stories researching this movie about how children actually use the message as a very empowering one. Like if if a kid, I read one story, a kid's too afraid to go off the diving board. Well, then if he realizes, like, wait, but this fear is just an emotion that uh, you know that doesn't define me. So I'm just letting this emotion take control of me, and then they were able to muster up the will to jump up the diving board. I mean, that is extremely profound for a kid 
to uh, come to that conclusion after watching a movie. I wonder how many kids, how many cases there were of kids like banging their heads against the wall trying to get like little people outside out of their brains. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not a lot. Shit. <laughs> Saying, if you take it literally. <laughs> so I actually want to go back to something that Austin said earlier about the way that sadness is portrayed in the movie. And actually, uh, Ekman and Keltner actually did call this out. He said... Uh, that he they have some quibbles with the portrayal of sadness in Inside Out. Sadness is seen as a drag, a sluggish character that Joy literally has to drag around through Riley's mind. Right. In fact, studies have found that sadness is associated with elevated physiological arousal, activating mm -hmm. the body to respond to loss. And in the film, sadness is frumpy and off-putting. More often in real life, one's person's sadness pulls other people into comfort and help. So... I think that just for, you know, a lot of decisions of creative liberties were made in this movie, as they should, because at the end of the day, they're trying to make a movie that uh, entertains. And so I can definitely understood, I think, that sadness as frumpy as a good counterpoint to joy makes sense. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're going to try to personify something that doesn't have consciousness, you're going to be sort of bastardizing the actual functionality of the entity, right? And so the entities are these emotional... Um, expressions they're not conscious so they're not going to actually have the characteristic of like being down on themselves and moody because that's an expression of some sort of conscious experience of your of your of your own emotional states which is a sort of second order level of feeling not that first order level of just pure emotion so of course because they're they're giving human characteristics to non-human entities there's going to be a little bit of um creative liberty that's taken place there but the thing that's so interesting is the way that nevertheless even though that's the case like and and helen you can speak more to this probably than i can but from what i understand like the scientific community are kind of like yeah man this is pretty fucking accurate like in terms of first of all like an animated film but second of all just a film that explores the inner workings of what we understand of the sort of like actual biological processes within human uh emotional states now like they did a pretty fucking good job. Is that not the consensus? No, that is the consensus, especially with, um, y you know, the there were certain aspects of it I think that they, like, obviously took creative liberties with. But I think that um, for the most part, especially when it comes to, um, you know, emotion and memory and that kind of interaction between the two and, and the idea that, you know, memories can be changed and mm. um as you you know when you retrieve them every time you raise the possibility of adjusting the memory specifically if you're you know in a new context that memory can the, your your interpretation of that memory changes in the context and that we know to be definitely true um you know there were little things like obviously memories aren't stored in you know they're not just kind of compact that way like they're in different parts of the brain and, and we kind of put um those you know sorry the pieces of memories are in different parts of the brain and we kind of bring them together when we're um you know remembering something but mm. um no but but definitely it's as far as all the reviews that i read from a neuroscience perspective were were pretty um celebratory of, of the way that they depicted things i have a bunch of quotes here from uh so paul ekman and the other guy actually have a website about their influence on inside out so there's a bunch of really cool quotes that if you guys would like i will read so a couple things that he says so that's they say that basically the two big things you can come away from inside out is first 
Emotions organize rather than disrupt rational thinking. Traditionally, in Western thought, the prevailing view has been that emotions are enemies of rationality and disruptive of cooperative social relations. But the truth is that emotions guide our perceptions of the world, our memories of the past, and even our moral judgment of right and wrong. So that's one thing. Another thing is that emotions organized rather than disrupt our social lives. So studies have found, for example, that emotions structure, not just color, such disparate social interactions as attachment between parents and children, sibling conflicts, flirtations between young quarters, and negotiations between rivals. So at least according to them, those are the two big things that I guess the visual nature of the movie points to in terms of scientific accuracy. One other thing I want to bring up, so just back to the storytelling thing and how it is that this movie works, I actually want to hear what you guys think about this, because I've been asking myself, how is it this movie works? Why is it that I was affected so profoundly? And I think that overall, this movie is kind of pretty similar to Finding Nemo in that it's the story of an overbearing mother. Joy is super protective of Riley, but doesn't realize that her being overprotective is what's ultimately hurting her. Just like in Finding Nemo, because she wants to keep sadness out of her life, and then she realizes that, oh, by keeping sadness out of her life, I'm doing harm to Riley. I'm stunting her development. Similar to how in Finding Nemo, the dad realizes that he's being a helicopter parent and that he, you know, he needs to let Nemo spread his wings or spread his fins and kind of do his own. What, what do you guys think about that? In terms of how, how, does, how does this movie affect you, you know, other than, because I don't think that uh, a documentary about brain science would affect us as and, much as this and, movie. You know, yeah, like you were saying before, there's no real protagonist. I mean, you can kind of say Joy is. but I think Joy absolutely is. And, but then there's no antagonist. Who's the antagonist? Joy. That's, what, that, yeah. that, that's probably the most brilliant thing about this movie. She, right. She's both. Which is cool. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What? Is anger not the also kind of an antagonist? Because he kind of uh, fucks up a lot of the plans. They're trying per- to they're trying to help. I mean, the movie paints it as if they're trying to help. They're trying to do Joy's job, but they just can't because they can't escape their essence. And is Riley not kind of an antagonist? Herself? Well, that's the weird thing because it's not clear if do the emotions dictate her behavior? Does she dictate her emotions? I know we just spent all this time talking about this, but. I do get the feeling if we are to believe that Riley's the protagonist, which I think she is on a or level antagonist. because everyone is Riley. Well, I or think so, both. So there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's actually an interesting way, and it was actually something that Helen said a minute ago that was really, I think, important. She said this film is less about like the inner workings of the brain than it is about the mind. And in in the language of like philosophy or phenomenology, we would say that it's a language or it's a film about consciousness, right? In the exploration of the different layers of like pre-reflective and then into reflective consciousness. And um, actually, I listened to a talk where Keltner quotes Jean-Paul Sartre, and um, Sartre wrote two books. His first book was on a theory of the emotions, and his second one was called uh, Transcendence of the Ego. And in those books, he actually develops a sort of theory of consciousness or theory of mind that maps on quite well to what this film is exploring. And it's about the sort of different layers of, let's say, like pre-reflective consciousness, which are the activities that are taking place in the brain. And then you have memories that are formed then based on the emotional experience that takes place in this body that is Riley's life, right? You know, her first experience is that joyous, like, smile that she shares with her her parents when she's in the hospital when she's first born. And so all of a sudden at that point then that gets stored into memories, which then gets turned into some sort of reflective order that turns into the island of her characteristic that is like family island, right? And then each of those islands are reflective states that make up her character or that make up her personality or that make up her reflective conscious order or comportment with the world. 
But then there's always this push and this pull between like the ordering of your reflective states, which is the reordering of those islands, as they're being disrupted by the pre-reflective states, which are emotions that are sort of interacting at this level of the body. And then so Riley is the sort of complex of all of that. So it's emotion mixed with memory, mixed with the way that emotions form memory, and then how memories uh, sort of would then impinge back on emotion and reflective consciousness. And there's this dialectical relationship that then turns into the body that is Riley. So there's like this warring faction that's always taking place that kind of fits within these varying levels of conscious experience. And so that's where you get the sort of the layers of protagonist and antagonist. They're all kind of protagonists and antagonists as they're warring with each other. If that makes sense. That was super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It was really, um, Ryan and I were talking today. We're playing around with doing maybe some reoccurring segments here. So for our first exploration into reoccurring segments, we're going to try. Which one? The show me the meaning. Pornify this movie. Ooh. So oh, everyone Jesus. has 30 seconds. 30 seconds to tell me what the porn version of this movie would be. Oh. Starting with Ryan. Well, clearly it would be. The horny emotion would take over, okay? Mm. Start during puberty. Yeah, during puberty, start fucking all the emotions and turn all the oh. memories horny so that the person that is Riley in the movie would be this, you know, become this sex fiend, nymphomaniac, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so you'd have the emotions having orgies inside her brain while she's around uh, having sex with everything and everyone around her. And that's, that's my inside out. <laughs> and it's oh, still called Inside it. Out, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I, don't, I don't think it this needs to be. This works on any level. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to say, in my demented mind, I was thinking, like, what would the emotions be doing, like, when someone's having sex? Like, what are they, what are they well, doing? Well, disgust you know? would be all over that. And, uh... Well, no, but, but, but the, they mirror what, I mean, the, it would just be, joy would be the only one there, right? Assuming it's good sex. Or there could be well, a little well, anger, I mean, be sad, anger and aggression. Anger, anger. Oh, anger would be there. You're right. Sex. Yeah. Be, well, uh... that's what I said. Depending on what kind of sex it was. <laughs> was right. Yeah. Could be disgusting. Fear would be a really interesting <laughs> element to throw Fecal in there. Sex. Yeah. yeah. There's, some, <laughs> oh, Jesus. there's some. Yeah. There's, there's you can have all there. all the emotions can have their own kind of sex, Jared. All right, Ryan. Jesus. I mean, Austin, you ready to pitch us your Inside Out porn? Yeah, I got it. I figured it out. All right. Three, two, one, go. First of all, it's still called Inside Out. It's directed by Gaspar Noé, and if you've seen Fuck Enter yeah. the Void, the camera, how it goes like in and out of the brain, and in and out, it would go in and out of the mind, and then in and out of various organs as well, and it would kind mm -hmm. of connect all of them together in some weird sort of montage flowing camera kind of thing, and oh, that would yeah. be, it. and it would still be called Inside Out for sure, or maybe mm, like awesome, yeah, Inside the Void. Ooh. <laughs> <Or something>. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. All right, I'll go next. My version would be that the emotions start, like, having sex with each other to basically try to create the perfect human. So, like, you know, they're, they're experimenting with, like, all right, so if joy has sex with sadness, then they're going to create, like, a half joy, half sadness thing. And then what happens if they put that in control? And then, you know, they just keep on mixing and matching and having all these crazy orgies to try to find out if they can create the most optimized human. So, wait, they're having, they're birthing all these babies it's... and just throwing them out <laughs> at the same time? And well, what's going on with their Riley while all this is happening? It's called puberty, Ryan. It's a very difficult time. All right. It's like Hitler. Puberty, trying to find the ultimate human in his mind, and so that he can make it. Yeah, I guess so. God kind damn, Jerry. All right. Well, then I think that's going to go ahead and wrap it up for. Oh, well, hold on. Actually, I do have something because we got something earlier in the chat, and so I wanted to call, make, do a call yeah. up in the chat. Okay. Um, so 
we were talking about imaginary friends and our imaginary friend, and uh, Christopher says or said way earlier, imaginary friends are overrated. It's all about tulpas these days. <laughs> oh, so do you know what a tulpa is? I had to look, up what, I had to look it up. To I, I know what, what a tulpa is. is. And, and, well, here's what it is on what is a tulpa on Google. A tulpa is an entity created in the mind, acting independently of and parallel to your own consciousness. They are able to think and have their own free will, emotions, and memories. In short, a tulpa is like a sentient person living in your head separate from you. Thank you, Christopher. So, wow, that. There, are, there are people who uh, actually try to go through these year-long process of creating an alternate consciousness in their mind. And, like, you know, a lot of this overlaps with kind of, like, people in Japan who are in love with, like, anime characters. They actually try to create a tulpa of that anime character so that they can actually have a as close to a legitimate relationship with an imagined <laughs> or a an, an imagined person as possible. I mean, I we actually Ryan brilliant. Ryan knows that we actually got a email from a fan once who was very passionate about talking about his process of creating his tulpa and uh mm-hmm. you well, know it, it was it was actually I, interesting because I, actually, we, I wanted that was a tulpa that was a tulpa. I, yeah, yeah, I wanted to I wanted I, I wanted right. to approach this with the least judgment as possible. All right, that's going to do it for today. I want to thank everybody for coming along. And I also just want to say, if you guys have a chance, I would really, really appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. It helps us a lot. It means the world to us. So please, if you have a second, give us a review on iTunes. would mean the world to Ryan, Helen, Austin, and I. It feels so, good. I want to thank uh, Helen for coming and joining us today. Thank you so much. It was great having you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And as always, Ryan and Austin, where can we find everybody on the Internet? Well, you can find me on YouTube and Facebook at Ryan Shorts and Ryan's Game Show, all sorts of fun comedy stuff all the time, every day. I love it. And Helen. You can find me on Instagram at Flourish, F-L-O-E-R-S-H, and it's mostly pictures of bugs and flowers. Oh, man, I like the bugs. I love bugs. I want to see the bugs. Bugs are dope. And Austin. Uh, Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, and you can tell me about your Tulpa experience, and then my Ryan Reynolds, Kate Beckinsale, and your whatever Tulpa can have a chat with each other. Fuck yeah. Awesome. Cool. That's it for today, what guys. Are you, Jared? Oh, my Tulpa? I mean, no, no. Where can we find you on the internet? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> where can we find your Tulpa on the internet? Uh, you can find my Tulpa on the internet at, uh, you could just at Wisecrack, or my Instagram is at Father of Woody, which is just pictures of my dog and my girlfriend's dog. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Until next time, peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California, and rest in peace, Bing Bong! Later. Bye.